they would be out screaming at you at half time, they'd be screaming you at the end of the game. What's the toll of that? David the Messiah Moyes. One of the best known football managers across the globe. Building teams with a clear identity. So where am I looking and who am I talking to? I was desperate to be successful as a manager and I had 11 years at Everton where we were finding it really difficult to break into the top four. The phone rang and it was Sir Alex. And he said, I'm retiring and you're the next manager of Manchester United. No interview, not saying, would you like to be? And I met Edward on the next day, back to his house again, we met the Glazers. It was three days and that was as simple as that. To get that offer from the greatest manager maybe there ever was was a great compliment. But maybe if I'd really looked into it in more detail and more depth, there was a huge change going to have to take place. I trusted Manchester United. Do you feel like that trust was let down? Definitely. But my biggest regret was... We start with the story that has dominated the front pages, the sacking of David Moyes. How did you find out that you're losing your job? Media. Oh, really? If you've got any class or any style, you have to give bad news well. What are those steps forward to get West Ham competing at the very top of the table? I want to build a new West Ham. A lot of supporters might not like the thought of that. When you look at where West Ham is now, do you worry about losing your job? I've got to say it. David, take me back to the context that I need to understand in order to understand you. Take me back to Glasgow, mm-hmm. 1960s. Yes. I was in a really good family who were really important. And you probably hear me talking a lot about it now. But uh, we were a, a, a family who we stayed in the, the West End of Glasgow in a tenement building. And uh, we used to have to you know, go up the, up the tenement. And if people who don't know what a tenement is, a tenement is a, you know, what we would probably think a block of flats and you would go up the tenement. And they were never in Glasgow that, at that time very, very uh, good to look at. People looked down on them a little bit. But uh, it was a great upbringing for me. It allowed me to play my football out in the street, which at that time was, was something which everybody considered, you know, street footballers, everybody played football on the street. And everybody in Glasgow did play football on the street, played in the park. So I started in Glasgow in the West End, and that was probably where me and my family uh, grew up. Your father's also called David. He certainly is, yeah. What did he do for a living? And how did that influence Well, you? Well, this is probably, it's, it's a really good question to me if for me is because my dad actually was a teacher, but he worked in the shipyards in, in Glasgow, which was really important. So he worked in the, as a shipbuilder and then he went on to become a teacher in a college. But meanwhile, what he'd done in, in his part of his other job was that he was a, a, an amateur football manager. And there was a very famous boys club team in Glasgow called from Chapel Amateurs, which was very famous. And really is uh, all my memories come of my dad running one of the teams at Drumchapel Amateurs. Now, for the people who don't know, you know, there's people like uh, Sir Alex Ferguson played for Drumchapel Amateurs. There was people like uh, Asa Hartford played for Drumchapel Amateurs. John Watt was a Scottish international. So it was a very, very famous boys club. Uh, my dad also ran uh, the college where he teach. My dad was a, a teacher at Annie's Land College, which was a college in Glasgow. And he uh, he took the team every Saturday morning and then he took the amateur football team every Saturday afternoon. You've got to remember, this was all as well. There was no no money involved in this. So really, 
part of my life was seeing my dad grow up as a football manager for amateurs. Uh, but meanwhile, his real job was that he was a teacher at, at Tannisland College. Did that make you want to pursue that as a career at that time? Or, or what, what kind of influence has that had on you in hindsight? Well, I think when I look back now, I'd say to say to I think your parents have huge, huge influence in everything you do for different reasons. Mine definitely did. But I don't think when you're growing up as a boy, you're thinking that, you know, oh, I'm going to be influenced too much by my dad or my mum. You don't think that till you get a bit older yourself. And when you look back, you go, wow, I can't believe that I'm quite similar to my dad or I can't believe that I followed my mum. And going back to that, you know, my mum was part of it as well. My mum had to wash the strips and hang them up outside and, you know, and then she'd have to wash them and I, she'd wash them and iron them and I'd be folding them and putting them away. So probably from a, a really young boy, I was watching my dad and my mum uh, help help young young boys at that time, you know, fulfil, go for a game of football. Hopefully they were all hoping to go on to become professional footballers. But if not, try and be successful playing for, for the boys team in Glasgow at that time. One of the things we, we do tend to pick up from our parents, from what I've seen, and I certainly did myself, was I, I guess like principles and values of like how to approach life and how to deal with life. Mm-hmm. Um, what were those principles and values that your parents imparted on you directly or indirectly from observation about life and how to deal with it and how to confront it? Well, I think your parents will always influence you in some way. Uh, I was sent to church when I was, was when I was younger. So Same. I went to church. A lot of people were. And I think that probably had an influence as well in its own way in the in the early days. But I think more to do with schooling, uh, more to do with uh, education and, and what they, they try to do. And to be fair, none of them, I was never pushed on anything. I was never pushed to, you know, to be that well educated. I was never pushed that to be a great football player. They were just encouraging, really, and all was there to support. So I had parents who really let me grow up the way the way I chose to do so. But everything was guided by them, you know, respect, uh, no trust, you know, trying to be truthful all the time. All those things, I think, come into uh, a good relationship. Did you ever have a, you kind of suggested there that they weren't necessarily like pushy parents necessarily, Mm -hmm. but did you ever have any idea of what career or aspiration would make them proud? If I'd asked you, you know, what does your (sighs) mum or dad want you to be when you're older, when you were younger, what would you have said? Uh, I think my dad would have definitely said, I hope you're a footballer. <laughs> you know, I think that would, I think my dad would have always probably thought that he had a great love of football as well. But I think they were, they were always really supportive in, in, in anything I wanted to do. But I think, you know, as I get, as I got on and I got to an age where I was starting to get closer, I you know, 12 or 13, I think football was probably my, my biggest sort of love and what I wanted to do. And I was more interested in either watching football, playing football. And uh, and that was probably, they probably saw that round about that age as well. And is it sort of 12, 12 years old, you were in Celtic's youth system? Yeah, it was, what it was is at that time Celtic, Celtic had a boys club. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember, my dad also, as I said, ran a, a very, very famous boys team or one of the teams in, in Glasgow and Drum Chapel Amateurs. So, but I went to Celtic boys club Uh and I played with Celtic Boys Club from when I was about twelve to sixteen till I went on. But they were they were brilliant years I had there. You know the my time at Celtic, which uh, you know came after as a as a player and a and as a 
you know, a, a senior professional, or not a senior professional, but a professional, I should say. But the young, the young period when I was at Celtic Boys Club was, I can only remember being winning things and being really successful and, you know, representing, you know, Glasgow schools as a schoolboy, representing Scotland school, schools as a schoolboy international. So I had really, really uh, good days in the early days, probably from 14, 15 onwards. Did you, if I'd asked you, even at that age, so say when you were 16, if I'd asked you about your ambitions in football, what would you have re- responded with? Uh, I, I, I hope that I might have been good enough to, to become a player. I'm not sure I would be. Uh, and I, I would love to be involved in football. And I always used to think that, you know, I'm hoping that maybe I could run an amateur team or I could be involved. I could maybe, might be good enough to take a junior team, you know, might get paid a little bit of money. You know, maybe, I, maybe I'd become a youth team coach for somebody if, if you know, if I wasn't going to be a football player. Always thought even at that time when we were growing up, there's lot, lots of youth clubs, you know, so we would go to a school youth club, you know, because it was where you would get a game of table tennis, mm. you'd play pool, you know, the, the gym might be there and you'd play five-a-side football, you know, with the, whoever was there. So I always thought, well, maybe I might be able to work in a youth club or something if I didn't get a, if I didn't get in more better than that. So those early days, there was no guarantee that you were going to go on to become a footballer. Every, every boy really wanted to become a footballer. What did you learn from your dad as a manager? Is there anything even today where you think, I, I think I got that from my dad yeah. or that trait or that? Yeah. yeah. Planning. Yeah. Organisation. Commitment. And if I just sort of planning, you know, at that time, there was no mobile phones then. So it was, it was the phone. So he'd be phoning all the players to say, look, we're playing on Saturday. I want you to meet at 12.30. We're meeting, whatever it was. And at that time, they all had to come at times with the same, with a shirt and tie on. They had to bring a bag. You know, they all had to come with the same bag. Shirt and tie, you've got to remember, this is Glasgow in a time when, you know, people were, people had to turn up with collar and tie on. And if you didn't turn up with your collar and tie on, you might not get selected for a game. So small things like this, if you're talking about maybe disciplines or, or ways you were brought up, I think possibly I picked up a lot of the traits probably early on. Why does that matter? Why do the small things matter, shirt and tie? Um, do you think they matter, I guess, is another question. Yeah, I do. I think they really do matter. I think they, sometimes, I mean, and I have to say, in, if you if you jumped on to this, my senior time, I think I think they, they've always looked better. I think players, people have always looked better they, if they dress well and they, they're correct, they look prepared for the games. I jumped to Manchester United just quickly and say, you know, Manchester United had a rule which Sir Alex had that they would always turn up for away games and shirt and ties. Now, most teams would rather turn up in the tracks so the players can come more casual. But Manchester United always turned up uh, with a shirt and tie on, which I thought was a great thing because they wanted to show what they were, wanted to come out there and say, look the way we dre- look the way we approach it. You look at this is Manchester United. Here. And I, I, I've got to say, I really admired, admired that part of it. It's interesting. It's an interesting small psychological advantage, isn't it, to some degree? If mm-hmm. I guess it's a statement of professionalism and attention to detail before the before the ball's even kicked. It is, and, uh, you know, the, so the, the, that takes me back. So you're saying is, no, maybe Sir Alex, who played with from Chapel Amateurs, maybe maybe had picked up from his time at from Chapel Amateurs, you know, the, the way they, 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 they had to turn up with shirt and ties on and they had a blazer on. And again, this was just an amateur football team in Glasgow. You, you, um, you played with many, many clubs over your almost 600 mm-hmm. career career, um, games few 
across a variety of different divisions. Um, that time working as a player across multiple clubs and multiple divisions, what did that teach you? And it's always useful to get a variety of different experiences so that you can kind of create your own perspective on, on the world. But what did that teach you, those 600 games as a player? What are the fundamentals? Uh, the fundamentals were I, I, I learned so much. But my, uh, but my early days when I, when I started at Celtic was probably engraved in me more than anything because Celtic had a, an incredible tradition of winning, you know, winning. Now, obviously, Celtic had to win with style as well. Celtic were, you know, the biggest club with Rangers in Glasgow, in, in Scotland, I should say. And, and because of that, Celtic had to to win was always so important. So, all, no, I could see the, there was the first team, there was the reserves, there was the, the youth team. And all the managers were under pressure to win. Then if you did win, then it was, and what was the score? You won one nothing. That's not good enough. You need to win. You need to win three or four nothing. You need to win by more goals. And how did you play? Well, we didn't play that well. We scored an own goal. It was a scrappy. Not good enough. You have to win with style. So I think my early days, I, I was brought up with brilliant footballers. People who showed me, I don't know if you want to call it a philosophy, because philosophy might be much deeper and might offer much more. But it gave me something I had to say, well, I have to win. I have to find a way of winning. You know, if I can win with style, that's even better. But more importantly, I have to find a way of winning. And I picked that up probably from my early days at Celtic. And I wasn't there that long. Not that I wasn't there that long, but I wasn't there that long probably as a senior player. I moved on and ended up bobbing around the championship and a couple of lower leagues in England for a long time. But I come across some some really great managers. Uh, I come, come across some which weren't so good. But, you know, I, I always try to res be respectful to any of them because that that came from, from my background and my, my upbringing. But I also th was trying to pick up everything I could. And when I was 20, I had already qualified as a as a full-time, full A-licensed coach at the time. You know, to be a coach, you had to have an A-licensed, it was called. Uh, now you have to have a pro license, but you have to, it was, a, it was an A license. I'd qualified as a coach when I was 20, 21, which was unusual. And the reason I'd done that was because the coaching courses were obviously full of really experienced managers, full of really lots of players trying to get into management. The only reason I went and done it was hoping that I'd become a better player. I thought that if I went on these coaching courses, it'll help me become even better as a player. And I had a I had a, a really good career, but not quite at the elite level, which uh, I really wanted to be. Whose idea was that, to go and do a coaching course at 20 years old to improve yourself as a player? Uh, my own, because I thought that maybe I'd find out more about it. But I have to say, there was a thing when we were, we were young players, we were, uh, when we were 16 at Celtic, we were sent to the courses to help the coaches. So we were called the runners. Ah. So we were down there to do all the running, you know. You had to do all the running, you had to be a fullback, you had to be a midfield player, and, you, and all the practices were put on for the coaches. And uh, you know, Scotland had great, great coaches at the time. You know, people people like Sir Alex, Jim McLean, you know, Walter Smith. You know, I could go on and on. Scotland had brilliant coaches without naming the likes of Jock Steen and you know, Bill Shankley, and, and mo you could go on and on. Uh, George Graham, for example. So I, I was sent down by Celtic and I was one of the runners for a couple of years. And once I was down, I said, oh, I want more of this. I want to be around football people. I loved listening to them. I hoped that I would impress some of them who were who were managers of, of really big clubs at the time. 
and that's where I thought, well, no, I'm going to go and do my badges myself, and went on to went on to do them in Scotland. When your time at Celtic um, in the first team, when you got signed there, it was three years, right? You were in Celtic. Yeah, yeah. You then got to experience other cultures and clubs, mm-hmm. but you you cite Celtic as having that sort of winning mentality mm-hmm. that some clubs just have, where they're almost you know yeah. they just they get used they like develop the habit of winning. Mm-hmm. Throughout your career, you've been in clubs that have the habit of winning. Um, but also clubs that maybe have struggled in the opposite mm-hmm. direction and don't have that culture of we always win every mm-hmm. game. When you think about the clubs you've worked in that have that habit of winning like Celtic did, mm-hmm. what is that? How is Where does that come from? And what, what, what does it look like and feel like? It, it looks like you walk in every morning with your chest out and your head high and you're sort of confident in what you're doing. There's a a motivation to keep it going, not to let it drop. There's a something about having to continue to improve to stay at the top, that you can't just do what you're doing, which is going to keep you there forever. You have to keep trying to find a way of doing it. So I, I did see that and I feel that and I've seen it at other clubs since. But I have to say, I think on the journey to probably where I am today is, is probably more that seeing a lot of the other side as well is actually the bit which, you know, I've been at clubs where I've been getting relegated. I've been at clubs where I can't win. I've been at clubs where, you know, it's not going well. I've been at clubs where there's, you know, it's it's not been as powerful as, as say, a club like Celtic. So I think I think you have to see it all round for you to give yourself the best the best chance. And I keep saying is, you know, to do, to get to become a football manager, I don't think there's any one plan. You could be the best player on the planet and not become a football manager. You could be someone who's never played the game and become incredibly successful as a football manager. So I don't think there's necessarily one way you do it. I'm really in- intrigued by this this idea of like cultures at, at clubs and within mm-hmm. teams and how you can just feel it almost when when a club has that momentum and they're a winning team and when they don't. Um, on, the, on the contrary then, when we're thinking about teams that are struggling and that aren't performing well... Um, what are the signs of that? Now, Rio said something really interesting. Was it Rio? Was it Gary, Gary Neville said something interesting to me. He said that when he was at old, um, Manchester United, Sir Alex Ferguson only came into the dressing training ground dressing room twice. And he said he never needed to come in there because the culture was in there. Yeah. So if like when Berbatov came over and wasn't fitting the culture, the players would correct him. Yeah. He then says when he went to QPR, when the manager left the changing room, everyone was talking about their wages yeah. and where they're going next. Mm-hmm. You can you can feel that like yeah, there there is a difference. I actually think the culture. I mean, that that team what you're talking about, Manchester United, were we had incredible players and you no, know, I wouldn't say self-made because they had they had a great manager. But if you look now, if I moved to just now, I'd be saying is there's much more communication in life now. I came from a background where it was really tough. The Scottish managers, you know, they probably the working background we came from, uh, they they would be out screaming at you at half time, they'd be screaming you at the end of the game, you know, they would be they would be they would be after you if you didn't do well. I don't think that culture's there and I don't think I think it's changed completely in Scottish managers. And if you look about Scottish managers probably over history, Scotland had lots of managers in the English Premier League, for example. Mm. Very few now. And it might be that we're having to change your culture. So going back to a little bit what you're talking about, Rio said, getting in it there. I think there was a period where the players looked after themselves, or they could take the hard hitting hair dryer treatment, if you want to call mm. it that. Now I think it's a completely different 
culture now, whether we've changed or whether I feel as if management is not necessarily in that form. I don't think, I don't know, maybe you, Steve, you'd tell me even better. You're head of businesses. Would you go in and be screaming well, blue murder uh, at your staff now? Do you know what? The thing, one of my, actually I think it's an advantage is I didn't grow up in that culture yes so i've never known it i've yeah. never known the the prospect of like coming into work and like mm -hmm. whereas you hear about it in some old businesses where like the ceo would come in and throw things and throw yeah. the table over yeah. and stuff yeah i just never grew up in that environment i grew up in a, a, a sort of a societal expectation that a manager is like you know mm. yeah. might be tough and, and sometimes but is fairly nice yeah there's no like big glass office that i sit in away from yeah. my team members mm -hmm. it's a different world these days what in, as you relate you were talking about there you said that it's kind of a different world in, in management. Mm -hmm. You've been in, you know, the job since you were, I guess, 20, in your early 20s. Mm -hmm. You're 59 now? I'm 59 and I've, I've probably been in management since I was early, early 30s or when I okay. started and then. So 25, 30 years, um, you talk about the change that you've seen in the approach that is effective now. What is effective now if 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 once upon a time scottish managers could come in and hair dryer it and scream yeah. and whatever whatever how has the approach changed in your view well let me tell you i remember i remember one of the managers coming in to the dressing room and I always said is don't look up just look at the floor look at your boots look down because if you catch his eyes he's going to come for you so so it used to be don't look up so that he couldn't have any eye contact with you and you had to you know and you probably put your head in a towel so that he couldn't see and and uh, because that was the way it was. We were it was that, and I think that I probably had a lot of that in me when I first started. But the difference now is, is I think we're in a different, and maybe maybe yourself, and maybe you all understand it's a different era. So as a coach and as a manager and as a, a man now, I think you need to find a way of how you're moving on with that, or you'd be left behind. And I've got to say, I think in my position, I've got to admit, I have to keep trying to uh, keep up, renew, invest in more work to find out how it's going on. There's so many new things. And it, that don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that I've still not got the bit of anger in me when I think the players need it. And I actually think that, I think they like it. I think sometimes they like it. I think, I think people want to be told the truth. And I think one of the, the worst things you can do to people is, is I think if you keep praising people all the time, I think it makes you soft as well. So I think there's a, a level of praise you can give people, but I think you've also got to be really tough with your praise as well. And I actually think that as I've got older, I've become better in giving praise. Mm. I think there's some of my players, I'm sure at Everton would say that I very rarely gave them praise because I, I was always looking for better from them. You know, over the last, I don't know, well, I've been in business, what, 10 years or something. Um, not not as long as you in terms of management, but um, even I've started to notice some like warning signs in people. So like, if I see this in the interview process, I go, oh, well, I've been, I saw this before and then it ended in this way. Yeah. Kind of like pattern recognition. Yeah, yeah. You've talked a lot about, and I've read a lot about your scouting process, how you find great talent, mm -hmm. great players. What are the things you look for in the things that you consider to be warning signs? I always wanted someone who I thought, was putting in effort. Okay. I always thought that, and they might say, well, how can that come in front of many other things? Well, I can think of many, probably you, and you'll think of plenty of schoolboys, friends who were really talented players, but maybe didn't, weren't dedicated, didn't put in the effort to, didn't do the work. I think if you don't put the effort and the dedication to it then, and the other thing what I use a lot is, is, you know, if you don't love the game completely, 
then you'll probably find it really difficult. I think you'll find it really difficult to become a manager if you don't love the game with, or have real longevity. I think you could be a player and maybe get through your, your career 10, 15 years as a player with maybe without loving football. But I think if you want to go longer, I think you've badly got to love, love the business. When I, w I became manager of Everton, but I did it before, I used to always meet the players, and I still do if I can. You nearly wanted to see their eyes to see, I need you to work hard. I'm needing you to know to do this job for the team. I'd like to see, are you going to take that? I'm going to be critical of you and I want you to get better. Are you happy with it? You, you nearly wanted to put the questions over to them to see if they were going to take it. Did you? I did, to many players. And I've, had, I've got to say, we've had quite a few over the time, which I've got to say, who I've had in my house, who I've had in uh, offices, and we've probably not taken them. Sometimes because, a bit like you said, sometimes something just makes you go, that's just not what I quite wanted to hear. And that might only be a gut, and it might not. It might have no reason, and the boy, some of the boys I'm talking about have gone on to be superstars and play for other clubs. But something at the moment can only give you that little bit of gut feeling if you think it, it, it sounds like it's going to fit for you. And uh, I'm not saying you get it right, but I think at that time you have to have your own your own sort of things where you say, no, I'm not going to change. This is what I want to do and I want to keep it this way. And uh, I, some of, I've missed out on some. How does that process work? If you're looking, let's say you're looking for a striker, what's the process? You know, because we've heard so I, I don't mean, my only understanding of like signing players is playing like football manager on the mm -hmm. on the playstation or yeah. whatever but i have in my head you have all these scouts they produce reports yeah and then I'm, do you, you know what position you want to fill do you go to the scout or what mm -hmm. happens uh i think you in the main the scouts will probably bring them to you i mean like if it's somebody playing for one of the teams locally or that and is available and you think there's a chance then you'll probably try and do your homework you'll try and you know obviously statistically you'll try and get it right you'll try and look at their strengths and weaknesses. You'll you'll take into consideration maybe the price he's going to cost, where you think it's you no know, where he fits in for you, what you can do. But the ones you don't know are what you you're looking for your scouts to bring to you. And in quite a lot in modern football, it's the agents who are bringing them. You know because the agents are playing such a huge part. You no, know, whether you see it as a positive or a negative, they're playing such a huge part behind the scenes in football at the moment. And these people will bring it. Obviously, if you're trying to sell something, you're always going to talk it up. But in the end, you know, we would, or I would always try and get my scouts to go through it. They would probably say, yes, this is com worth coming and looking at. Come in, we should, we'll go and sit and we'll, we'll sit for a few hours watching. If we wanted to take it even further, then we would go into much further detail. We'd eventually probably start trying to find out people who know the boy or has played with the boy and try and get a bit of his character background. We'd try and find out more about you know, is he the is he the right type? You know, is he is he a good boy? Is he is he a good trainer? Is he going to be disruptive in the training? I think all those things are really really part of it. I don't think any, I don't think any football manager wants people who are not going to fit in and and work with it. And I'm guess again, I reverse back to business. Probably you're the same. You don't want people who are not going to fit in with what you've got. You want somebody who's going to come in and blend in and be part of it. What was your best ever signing? Oh, but I, I always say Nigel Martin, I signed Nigel Martin, the goalkeeper who was at Leeds United and he was on a free from Leeds United and we took him to Everton at the time. And it's only because he was a free, but not only that, he was a, a great goalkeeper. Obviously, he had been an England goalkeeper. He was probably near at the end of the time. 
but he gave me about four or five years of stability. But see, when people talk about signing your, your best signing, over the over the time I've now been, I've made that many signings that I've got, you know, it would be, it's really pretty shameful of me even to name one because I've got so many that I could I could say. You don't have to, I wouldn't ask you to name your worst signing, but where have you frequently got it wrong when signing players? Uh, no, what I think you do is I think it's the ones I've missed. The ones who you've said, nah, I don't think he's quite good enough. I think I'm going to, don't think I want it. And I've had hundreds of them. Who's the one you missed the most there? Well, just recently because it's, because because we've been talking about it, mm. you know, we, we've been, Alvarez, who's just played for Argentina in the World Cup, you know, was, I, I brought in a new scout who says, look, you should go for Alvarez at River Plate. And I watched him, I watched him, he's a very good, really good technician. I thought he, he'd done so many good things as a centre-forward, but I thought maybe not quite the one we want, maybe didn't quite. We had Mickey Antonio, uh, who had been doing very well. I thought, I don't know if he's... You know. And you see, sometimes the players change in six months. But I have to say, there's other other players like that who you don't take and don't go on to be a real success. But that one at the moment is just one because it was probably only a year ago where I, I decided, nah, I don't think it's probably the one we're going to take. It's the same in business. No matter how many people you hire, yeah. it's always still guessing. Yeah. And I was speaking to my friend Gary Vaynerchuk about this, who's hired about 5,000 people. And he said to me, he says, you know, I've been in this game for 30 years and I'm still just guessing because we can come up with all the principles and systems we want, but how someone, people change, but also how they present in an interview yeah. can be drastically different to how they present in six months time yeah. when they're comfortable. You know what? It, it's really interesting. I'm asking you, I, I hear now and I, I hear because there's so many jobs change in our, our industry, you see is, how do you pick a good football coach now? You know, how would you pick a, a football manager, whatever way you want to put How would you pick a good football manager? You know, what would give him the, you know, the owners or the people who are doing it, how are they picking it? Because again, what I said is, is yes, of course, we can think of some real special people who would be, would be in that group. But if you're, you're a, a lesser club, trying to pick a new talent, you know, you know how, why would you get it? Has he got the drive? Has he got the energy? Has he got the love for the game to 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 stay with it? Has he got an idea that he wants to go further and he's going to put the work in? It's really hard and sometimes you can't find him and I get the feeling it's the same in, in industry now as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I think the more I've hired, the more I've realised that it's just guessing, which I think people yeah. will be surprised at because people will think that you'll get progressively better or your your confidence will, be, will will grow my confidence has actually fallen with experience yes so so what that means for me is that when i hire someone and i know it's not right just very quickly have to make a decision because the worst thing is indecision right waking wasting too that's long it. that's it i've got we've we have the same situation we're we talking about is we're buying players and we're and we're spending a lot of money like you are and then you're saying is and you're saying no but you can't do this but we don't think you can do that and, and at times, maybe the older you get, you would think this it becomes easier. It actually becomes harder the more you're in it because you've probably seen the good ones, the bad ones. Yeah, this is we followed this path to try and get a good one, but not so good anymore. We're going to follow another path. So I've got to say, you no know, hiring people and bringing them in is not an easy thing to do. It's slightly different, I guess, in business because as the CEO, I in business you usually get to make the decision about who you're hiring. I mean, sometimes, of course, managers at lower levels make, make make that decision. But in football, there's often a conversation that the board or the owner has stepped in mm -hmm. and has told you who to sign mm -hmm. and who to buy. 
Well, I think that's one of the things really in football where you would say, if if an owner was going to do that, you'd say, no, come on, it's not not right. It is, it's part and parcel of football now. It's rife in football where a lot of owners are making the signings in, instead of the manager. Has the owner ever asked you to sign a player? Uh, yes, yeah, they have, yeah. What did you say to them? I, I've tried to say, I've said no to it, you know, and I've said, no, it's not the way I do work. Now, if the players are good, I'd be, I'd be saying, great, bring me them in. But then what we would do is if we get a name of a player, then we would pr- try and do our homework and try and do other stuff. And by the way, we might be wrong. We're accepting that. But if we follow the, the correct process or what we believe is the correct pro- pro- process and it still comes out, no, we have to go with what we say. Now, if the process says, hey, by the way, we're hearing he's a good player, scoring lots of goals, he's, you know, he's young, you know, resellable, if it doesn't work. If all those other points come up, then we're saying, oh, wait a minute, maybe we have to think about it. But I think really trusting your process and hoping that the longevity I've had will probably hope that you've made more right decisions than wrong decisions by the time by the time you get round to making the final decision. I guess one of the things you can control, which doesn't have to be a guessing exercise, is the culture that they join. Mm-hmm. So if the culture that they join is good, then there's a higher chance of them being successful as a player, as a new yeah, signing. I agree. How do, how, do, how do you do that at the clubs you're managing now, West Ham? have you done that in the past to make sure the culture is right? And what is that culture? Yeah. Well, I think, I think for me, the biggest one was when I, when I was at West Ham the first time, we came in, we thought we'd done a good job and we kept the team up. We were asked to come in, we kept the team up and we didn't get the job. And then another manager came in and we were, we were out of work for a year. So then, to be fair to the owner, David Sullivan, he phoned me up at company and says, would you come in? I says, yeah love to come back no problem I felt I had to do a bit more at West Ham or had to try and I I, I keep using and I say it openly now I want to build a new West Ham so what does a new West Ham mean well a lot of people a lot of supporters might not like the thought of that but West Ham have moved to a new stadium it's not been it's not been appreciated by everybody but that's what we're going to be, it looks like, for the next 100 years. That's what it looks like. The club's going to be there. So we need to make the best we possibly can of it. You know, I want to change the cut. I want I want there to be lots of young kids come to West Ham. East End of London's a huge area, full of West Ham supporters. A, a, a lot of poverty in the area. West Ham offer great ticket prices, great opportunities. They do brilliant work in the community of West Ham and in East End of London. They really do. And I want it to encourage all the young kids. Now, what do you need? You need exciting players so that the young kids want want to buy a jersey so that they're not following the top two or three teams in the country. And you want them to come. So I've I've tried to change... I've tried to change the team. But, you know, deep down, I'd really like to say I'm trying to make West Ham better. And it used to always do it. Other people... I was a manager at Everton, I was manager at Man United and other clubs. Folk would say, ah, you get a flaky West Ham, you know, they're not not that reliable and you don't know what West Ham team's going to turn up. Well, I want to change that culture. There's so much room for improvement at West Ham. You know, I think it's got great potential to improve. And I I hope that you get I get the opportunity to keep it going. We've had a couple of really, really good years. Uh Success for West Ham. It's been success. And it's how we continue that success now, how we build on it. And I think if you're if you're in business, 
I think you'll accept it. You know, you quite often you have a couple of years or a good year, and then you might not have it quite so good because of what we're a little bit like that at the moment. So I'm hoping that culturally, I think we have changed. I think we've changed a load of things at West Ham. We're not we're not milky. We're not flaky. Uh, I think there's a different atmosphere in East End of London regarding how people see West Ham. I I like the way we've done it, but we've also got some exciting, really exciting young players who those young supporters I talked about could follow. What are those next steps then? If you if you reflect back on what you did at Everton, you took them from mm-hmm. being that kind of you know happy to survive club to in your last I think in your last eight years you finished in the top. You last seven years, you finished in the top, one of the two. Yeah. You last eight years, you finished in the top eight, seven times yeah. or something to, along mm-hmm. along those lines. Um, they became a, a consistent, competitive team at the top top end of the mm-hmm. table. When you look at where West Ham is now, as we sit here now 16th in the table, mm-hmm. what is what are those, but after two amazing years in the two mm-hmm. previous years where West Ham were absolutely fireworks, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Dangerous, very, very, very dangerous team to, to play against. I'm not a Manchester United fan, so... I remember the last two years have been really, really um, incredible yeah. for West Ham. What are those steps forward now to get West Ham to being that team that, that is competing at the very top of the table? And mm-hmm. I find it so interesting that, in fact, when you when you answer this question, you don't just think, oh, we need to buy more players. It's kind of more of a holistic, wider, broader job mm-hmm. that needs to be done. Yeah, I I, I actually think that we've, we've bought more players and I think that, you know, I've, I've gone out there and said, this is what I'm doing. But I think I... Sometimes I think in, in football... Not that you need to break it, but we had a really good team for the last two years. But we had a few, Mark Noble was coming to them, one or two other players were coming to them, we had to change, and we were actually short in numbers, we were really short. The players have done, and I felt as if I nearly had to break it up a little bit, because I had seen signs. Now, my experience, my longevity was telling me, if I don't do this now, then I'm going to feel I'm going to be caught out. Now, we probably didn't do quite as well from January on last year. That was my feeling. We had some brilliant nights. We got to semi-final European football. You know, we'd been challenging all years. I mean, we in the last game of the season, we, we finished seventh, but we were 10 minutes away from finishing sixth above Manchester United. You know, uh, so the, the, the margins were incredibly small and all this. But I felt that now with, my, now with the age I'm nearly saying is, I don't really give a shit now, I've got to say, I'm not going to get many more goes at this. So if I don't make a go at it and I don't really do what I think's right and what I want to do, then I'll regret it. So there's part of me said, yeah, we had to bring in new players and we've gone out and we've put our head on the block and said, here we go, brought these new players in. Now what I really need is hope that I can get a little bit of time to settle and get them settled in. I think we've brought in good players. I think we have got a better squad Maybe not a better team at this exact time than what we had last year, but we've definitely got better players, which I, I believe will show that in, in the coming months. Do you worry about that, um, losing losing your job? Is that something that like sits in your, your mind? I, I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't, in my business, I mean, other than when I was at Social and I had a board of directors, we're a public company, mm-hmm. so technically they could fire me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something that I think about. Like if, I'm, if I perform badly as a, an executive, the company goes down. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no yeah, one that's going to cut, right. you know what there's I mean? No, that's right. Well, what I'd say is, I think as a young manager, I worried much more. Yeah. I think now in the in the position I'm in now and where I'm going, I, I worry far, far less because it's in my blood. I love the game. I want to be here. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. But 
it wouldn't be the end of the earth if it if something went wrong for me now it, it, where I'm at. But my pride, my determination is that I want to be successful and I want to, I want to you know be do a really good job for West Ham. So, but I think when you're younger, if you look now at young managers, young managers find it very difficult. If you don't do well in your first job, maybe like business, you know, in business, maybe you have a go and yeah. something fails, nothing quite works. You're, you're nearly tentative to think I could go again. Maybe nobody will help invest with me, whatever it may be. So it's so important you do get it right when you do go in. But going back to, if I just have to, because I want to mention I think you need people who are really supportive at the start. I had, I had a great owner at Preston North End, a couple of great owners who really supported me. Uh, when I went to West Ham, I had great men who who helped me at that time as well. And I think sometimes you need to be a bit lucky on your journey. That, you know, if you turn up at a club where an owner's making the signings or you're not there, that he's only going to give you half a dozen games to, to, to show what you can do, you're probably going to find that it's going to be very difficult to succeed. So... Maybe a bit lucky at the start, but I, I worried much more when I was younger than I, than I would do now. That success that you want the time to achieve at West Ham, what what is that success? What, what is the goal for West Ham? Uh, if we're sat here in, you know, let's say 10 years, five years time. <laughs> That's too long in football these days. Yeah. Five years time. What, what's, the, what's the goal? I think we've been successful. Yeah. I think West Ham have been successful in the last two years. And what you, you no. Know, Really, the, the ones who are the, the great winners and the serial winners are the ones who, once they get a bit of success, all they want is more of it. Uh, I'd love to be sitting here with, and bringing my trophies in here in front of you and putting them up and saying, here, look at these trophies. I've not got that. What have I got? I've got periods of success. You know, my teams have done well. We've got to Europe, you know, got to a cup final here and there. We've, we've got to semi-finals. So not everybody in the industry can have success. You know, not everybody can they'll be walking about with their medals and at the moment I'm not but I still believe there's still a big chance that I can do that Is that your KPI of success? Is that what you, uh, No, it... it's probably not now it's not now because I actually think staying in the job wouldn't be a bit longevity is a really important thing in, in any work if you can stay in it and you can it's, no, it's a big thing it's shown that you've done a good enough job but you know, I've had a cut. I've been fortunate enough with a few manager of the year awards over over the years. You know, the last few years I've been nominated for it. But I've said many times I'd swap it for one of Josie Mourinho's Fleming medals if I got the chance. You know, or one of his trophies all day long. So that's still got to be what I'm driving to do. Now, well, not gone forever because I'm getting older and I don't want to be as old as Sir Alex or, or Roy Hodgson when they finish those sort of people. But but I've still got the energy, I've still got the drive. I feel as if I've got a good team. And I feel as if I'm still capable of, of keeping up with those younger ones. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky. 
and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, so head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. Sir Alex. Sir Alex. There's been a lot said about Sir Alex. I talk about him a lot because I've interviewed so many of his former players. Um, there was a, a lot of rumours that he went to your house and asked you to become the manager of Manchester United. No, he took me to his house. Oh, he took you to his house? Yeah. And actually, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story, Steve. Is I, it wasn't long after I, I turned 50 and my wife had bought me a watch and, and actually we had gone through to Manchester to, to the jewellers. I needed to get a, a, a link taken out and uh, it was actually in Altrincham by all places. I was in Altrincham, and uh, the phone rang, and it was uh, it was Sir Alex. And I saw the way I says, "Oh, bloody hell! It's Alex on the phone." And I thought, "Oh, he's going to he's going to want one of my players, or he's going to want me to take one of his players." What's what, no? He's he's coming on to say something. And he and he said, uh, "Where are you?" I, I, I says, I'm, "I'm in Manchester." He says, eh, well, right, come out to the house when you're ready, will you? I said, and, and that's a poor Sir Alex accent probably, so don't, <laughs> <laughs> no, don't, uh, don't uh, And uh, I, says, I says to the wife, I can't do it, I'm in my jeans. I couldn't go to Sir Alex with a pair of jeans on. There's no way. So I'm saying, oh, what am I going to do? Do I go down to Marks and Spencer's and buy a pair of trousers before I go to Sir Alex? You know, so... She's saying, oh, can we go just go and get on with it and do it? So anyway, dropped my wife off at the shopping centre and, uh, and I drove out to Sir Alex's house and, and he went in, I went in and he says, and you come? And uh, very nice house and he's got a lovely sort of room, sports room up the stairs and he says, want a cup of tea? I says, I took up a cup of tea. And he, and he said, uh, I'm retiring. And you're the next manager of Manchester United. No interview. No, no telling me. Not saying, would you like to be? No, I'm retiring. And I nearly slipped down. It was a letter, so I nearly slipped down because obviously that was, nobody knew that Sir Alex was retiring. Nobody knew, no, nobody even suggested or thought about it. And I nearly slipped down when I heard him say that. And then he says, and you're the next manager of Manchester United. And I just sort of went, yeah, well, no, okay. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to turn around. I, I didn't think I would ever say no, or I could. I don't even know I was in a position to say no. And uh, and that was as simple as that. We got underway. He said, and there was only maybe, and to be fair, there was only four weeks to go to the end of the season, maybe five weeks to go to the end of the season. I was coming out of contract to Everton, and I was really wanting to be respectful to them. And actually, my next game was against Liverpool. Uh, on the Sunday, I think I met Sir Alex in the midweek on the Wednesday or something, on the Sunday. And I knew that if we had got a draw with Liverpool, we would probably finish above them in the league. And it was at Anfield and we did, we got a draw and we, we did finish above them. So it didn't have any effect on on what I was doing at Everton. But the big the big thing was to say, and then the next day he said, uh, I want you to come back to my house tomorrow. Uh, Ed Woodward's going to come and see you. He's going to be the new chief executive who, he says, David Gill's uh, leaving as well. 
And that was it. And I met Edward on the next day. And then the next day, back to his house again, and we met the Glazers. And so it was three days, three days where I dropped back to his house. The, the biggest problem I had was, he said, and you can't tell MD about me retiring. He says, nobody knows. And I said, no problem. He says, tell your wife, but nobody. So I couldn't tell my kids. I couldn't tell my dad. I couldn't tell my dad that I was going to get the job. I was getting the job. So that that for me was how it happened. And when I look back now, to get that offer from probably, arguably, uh, the greatest the greatest manager maybe there ever was, was a great compliment. Uh, but maybe if I'd really looked into it in more detail and more depth in, in, I was desperate to be successful as a manager and I had, had 11 years at Everton where we said we'd, I wouldn't say we'd hit the glass ceiling, but we were finding it really difficult to break into the top four, the, the competition and the money that was required. But my biggest regret was uh, I was so close to Bill Kenwright, the, the owner at Everton, and I and I couldn't tell him. And it felt and it, it was really bad that I couldn't tell him because I was so close to Bill, but I couldn't break my word with Alex. Sir Alex said he didn't want me to tell it, so I couldn't tell MD about my wife. So jumped back in the car, Drove back to the shopping mall, shopping centre. Got the wife, put her in the car. And I says, I'm the new manager of Man United. And she was like, well, you go piss off, you total rubbish, you know. So uh, that was it. And that was how it went. You were coming to the end of your contract with Everton at the time. Mm-hmm. What was your plan? You, you hadn't signed a contract. So no, you must have been I, thinking. I, been, I, had, I have to say is I had been... I think I would, my plan was probably to stay at Evan. We just hadn't got it done and for different reasons. I was wanting to see how it was going. But I have to say, I'd I'd met a couple of other clubs. I'd met another, a couple of really big clubs who'd approached me and phoned me and spoke to me. You know, what was I doing? Would I be interested? The truth is, I don't think I'd have, I'd have left for any of them uh, because Everton had been so good to me. But I was also wary about uh, overstaying your welcome at Everton. You know, sometimes just in management, supporters want change. They want to want to try something different, and and I, and I get it. I'm a I'm a huge football supporter. I, you know, if I wasn't managing, I'd be watching football, and I'd be you know probably talking about it like everybody else does. But uh, I, you know, it came up. I've got a chance to manage probably the biggest club in the world. I'm following a club who always give their managers time. They gave Sir Alex time. And also that their values were, you no, know, they played young players, Man United. I always thought Man United never went out and tried to buy the best on the market. They, they never went to the, went to, they never went to the sort of designer shop to buy the best thing in the designer shop. They bought correctly. They bought young players. They bought, you know, you look at the players they had, which they come through from Bex and the Nevilles and all the other ones who came through. They always had something, about, a, a bit of style about them. They never went out to get the best overseas manager in the world. They picked which fitted their model. So I actually felt when Sir Alex offered me the job and Manchester United were giving me the job, I felt they thought I must have been the best choice for the job at that time. And they saw that. And also maybe not similar, but similar in a way that maybe there was a similar background, a similar upbringing, a similar route maybe to, to get to the point. So... I trusted Manchester United. I really did. I trusted them because of what they stood for as a football club. 
you know, many times um, when you're successful as you were at Everton, you're given big opportunities. It's the same in business. People come to me and give me these huge opportunities. And sometimes like the bright, bright lights of the opportunity have often caused me to make a wrong decision or not to take, Mm -hmm. you know, take the right amount of due diligence, as you described Mm -hmm. there, like not really looking into the details because it's such a big thing that you almost can't say no to it. You said there that you wish you'd looked a little bit closer at the details. What what do you mean by that? Well, I'll tell you who told me was uh, Howard Wilkinson said to me down the line, I wish you'd told me before, he says, all the managers who have had a dynasty, so when you look at it, uh, I think it was Brian Clough was one of them, I think the other one was Sir Bobby Robson. All the managers who had the real uh, dynasty, uh, I'm trying to think League United manager as well, uh, Don Ravy maybe as well, I think it was. MD who followed them never worked. Now, I never even thought for a minute because I I thought to myself, no, I'm, I'll come in and, and I actually ch- was thinking, I'm not changing I'm going to try not to change much with Sir Alex. And of course I have to change it. It's not Sir Alex, it's me and I have to do it my way and I have to try and do it a little bit. But ultimately, uh, I was going to keep it going. But then I, when, I, when I look back at the things what I heard, I thought, my goodness, if I'd looked a bit closer. And maybe, even now, I'm a bit older now than I was when I got the job. Maybe, maybe, maybe even I, I needed even more experience than maybe even I had it at that point. Maybe we'd be more ready at this period in my career than I was even, say, no, don't know what it was, eight or nine years ago, whenever it was. So if they called you now? <laughs> well, no, they've got a really good manager, I think. And I think I think the, the, the thing about Manchester United, Manchester United have, have, have chosen incredibly good managers. Yeah. Probably some of the best managers, yeah. some of the best managers you could ever imagine have been, have been at Manchester United. So, you know, sometimes you've got to say, you know, if you're if you're quite bright, and I'm sure you are with the business you work in, it's not always the boss's fault that this doesn't, yeah. this doesn't go right. So, like, I, I, I took over at a difficult time, you know, there was quite a few senior players probably coming to near the end of their time. But I also have to say I was really proud that I took over the, the Champions England when, when that was the time. And that was, I'm saying, what a chance I've got. You know, maybe the opportunity to win trophies, the opportunity to be successful. And, and it was the thing I was probably missing from my time at Everton. I wasn't quite getting close enough to, to winning trophies. Would you, would you, Eric Ten Hag aside, I think he's great. I think we both agree there. But would you ever be open to coming back to Manchester United in the future if, they, if they'd asked? <laughs> Uh, well, I don't think it would ever be it would ever be in a role as a manager. That's for sure. So that my time's gone. But you know, if ever, I, I always love to be involved in football, and I hopefully somewhere along the line, someone will want to use my experience when my time's up with with being a football manager. But uh, Manchester United is a great experience, and I, and I and I found it difficult to sort of have have something which could sort of uh, I don't know uh, how it would I would sort of put over what it meant. And the only way I could put it out is I think when you manage Man United, it's like living in the penthouse and looking out, you know. And until you've had the penthouse and you're looking out and you're above everybody and you're looking over, you see the view much better. And uh, for me, they were the penthouse. One of the big things that did change at Manchester United, and I only know this because I had a season ticket, the ladies and the the men that serve you the food in like the hospitality suite Mm -hmm. or whatever, they always have a great relationship with them and they would tell me things about how the club was Mm -hmm. maybe before I could had enough money to buy a season ticket. One of the things they always said was the the role that David Gill had on the club as well. People don't think, understand that enough, but David Gill was the CEO of the club. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen in my own businesses when the CEO, me, <laughs> was removed, how much, it was a completely different place. Yeah. 
And people don't understand that because as mm-hmm. fans, we look at the manager and think, ah, but if the managers in my business are very, very, very important, but the person above them that has the most power and the most control yeah. and the most sway is the CEO. Now that changed and the, the, the wonderful people at Manchester United would tell me that, well, when David Gill was here, he knew all of our names. And that, that really struck me that like, he knew all of our names. Mm-hmm. He knew all of our birthdays. We used to see him. Now we don't see yeah. Edward Wood anymore. We don't see the, the chief executives anymore. They don't know our names. That's a real sign of a cultural change. Definitely. Just think of the values what that is. Yeah. The values of the CEO sending you a birthday card or, or doing that. And I mean, like if we, I would be incredibly complimentary about Sir Alex. Sir Alex would phone up managers who'd lost a job or managers who'd been successful. He phoned me up when we were doing very well at West Ham six months ago, whenever it was. He, they were always correct. And, and when you think of values of what it means to be at the top and what the things, small things which matter, those things really matter. But for me, I was taking over the club. I'd lost David Gill, who I knew very well from different things and working with him at UEFA and different things as well. And he was a huge, huge miss. But that wasn't to say that the new CEO wasn't, he was to be given every chance and I wanted to help him and he wanted to help me. Ultimately, it didn't work that way. You said you trusted the club to give give you long enough. Do you feel like that trust was let down? How do you feel Uh, about that? Yeah, I, I do a bit because I feel that, you know, I think that if you're putting in a new manager, you're hoping that you're going to give them, and look, I left a very stable job in a very good environment to come and do it. And obviously, no, I think when you when we look back, you would say, hey, there was a, a huge change going to have to take place at Manchester United after Sir Alex. And maybe, ideally, I think it was we were going to try and make it seamless where there wasn't going to be too big a change. But there was a lot of players changing uh, know getting to an age where they were no having to move on there was actually a big squad of of players who had been incredibly loyal to Sir Alex and suddenly they've got a new manager coming in the door maybe not playing them as much so they don't have quite the same uh, sort of closeness to to them and still building up relationship so I think there was I think there was a lot of that and it made it difficult but you know the the thing I I look back at business in in you're a very successful businessman I always think you have to give bad news well because you're the boss and you run a really big business like Manchester United did. And I think if you've got any class or any style, it's good when you get offered off the job and then you give them and you give them all the, and you talk about all this. But I think when you're having to give bad news out, I think giving bad news has to be done in a good way as well. And I felt the way that the, I was told at the time at, the, time at Manchester United wasn't done as well as it should have been done. Uh, but you the, know, the way that you were told you weren't going to be manager. Yes, uh-huh. you know, it was, there was there was ways it could have been done better and it could be made a lot easier than what it was. Now, I've heard this from former mm-hmm. players. I've heard mm-hmm. former players tell me that they were really disappointed by how the club, um, specifically Edward Wood, gave them their send off. I think it was I think it was Rio that said to me that like just came into the dressing room, tapped me on the shoulder, and told me that this was my last game or that they were selling me or something, mm-hmm. and that doesn't pay respect. No, to no, it it doesn't. And I actually think that looking back now, hey, you think to yourself, hey, it's life, get on with it. You know that's the way it is when you're, you know, you're in you're in an industry or you're in you do that. But I I still think that uh, I think if you're the biggest one of the biggest sport businesses in the world, if not the biggest you would hope that you would do things correctly, like David Gill would send, speak and say hello to them, or like they would send a birthday card. 
So the same should happen if you were telling somebody that you were you were stopping them or you were sacking them or you're getting rid of them. You would hope that they would do it the best way they could. How did it, how did you find out? Uh media. Oh media, really? Media phoning me, yeah. Lost a couple of game it lost the game at Everton actually and the media were saying, Oh no, you're losing your job. And uh you know, I, I tried to make contacts and, and say, look, why don't we meet up? You think you're going to be, it, it didn't suit. And before I knew it, they, they called me in the, the day after. And by this time, the whole world had known about it before I'd sort of get to, got to know. So sometimes I think people want to want to get it done right. And I just didn't feel it was right. But anyway, from my point of view, uh, I, I generally don't have any real, I don't have a gripe about it because the industry I'm in, uh, means that this can happen quite often and you don't get things done the way you want it and you have to live with it and and that's the way it is. In the wake of that, how does, um, what does it look like at home? I, you know, this is probably mm. one of the most interesting things that I personally pondered throughout that period as a Manchester United fan, which is when you go from the penthouse and then they, the, the landlord evicts you from the penthouse after, I don't know, 10, mm. 10 11 months at the club, the, the weight of Manchester United... You know, it's the most talked about club. It's the club mm. that sells the headlines. It yeah. gets all the clicks. So every, it must feel like everything is about you yeah. in the world of football. Mm -hmm. And it's like a very public, apparent failure at mm -hmm. home. You've got wonderful wife, Pamela. You've got two yeah. kids. What's it like at home? Uh, I, think, I think personally, you're a little bit ashamed because you've not done done well. You know, you've not done well for your family. So... I think personally I felt I'd let them all down because, you know, I I had really worked, like I said, if you know the probably the hours and the work I'd put in as a young I didn't believe I was ever going to be a coach, never mind the coach of Manchester United. But the hours of work I'd put in had got me to a level where I'd worked and I'd done an awful lot of hard work behind the scenes over the years. And uh, then to lose it so quickly. So you get a job. And, and I said at that time, I had two or three really, really big clubs who were, were talking about me and speaking to me. But when Sir Alex came and made me the offer, it was very hard to say no. And then for that to go very quickly. So it was a bit like getting to the top of Everest and then actually starting to decline very quickly. So from my point of view, it was hard going home. You know, it was difficult. Uh, but I've got to say, it's a bit like my mum used to just say, hey, Whatever happens, you just have to get up and get on with it. You know, you got on with it. You did be taking the chin and you got away and, you know, sort of sticks and stones. Don't worry too much about it. But you're right. When you're manager of Manchester United, you're talked about in every continent, every country. You'll either be in the front or the back page, just one of the papers. So, but that's also the privilege of being a manager of Manchester United as well. What's the what's the toll of that? If you were to warn me about the toll. Ah, uh, the... the I think the toll for someone who cares deeply about their profession and wants to be successful and wants to do well, the toll for me personally at the time felt felt big. It really did. And it's probably it probably took me a wee bit to get back on the road a little bit. Without thinking about it, I worked really... After I lost the job, I said, well, I'm going to have to go and try and reinvent, find out more new things, you know, keep, keep current. Where can I go to find out what's going on? You know... And I obviously couldn't go, to, go back to Old Trafford to watch a game or I couldn't really go back to, to uh, Goodison and watch a game. So it made it quite difficult. But I found myself doing quite a bit of work for UEFA. I'd, I'd done all the Champions League games, which was really good day. And and 
I spoke in all the pro license courses for the coaches, which kept me current and having to keep up to date with things. So those those type of things kept me, kept my education and kept my knowledge and kept me going a bit. But uh, I still think that when you when you you've been at one of the big clubs, it's always a miss because you realise the the level they're at. You said that the toll is big in a very practical, real sense. What does that mean? Is it sleepless nights? Is it anxiety? Yeah, is it? Yeah, but I'm, I'm someone who sleeps really well, to be honest. But I do think that it's very difficult when you when you lose your job. And in, in, in our business, it, you know, you're you're talked about a lot, so you have to accept it. And I'm a part of it. You will be as well. Or if things go wrong or any of your businesses fail, you'll be you'll be current. You no know, people will have criticism. But I think if you're going to go into football management, then you have to find a way of saying. How do I deal with it? How am I coping with it? What's my mechanism? Uh, I remember thinking when things weren't going so well at Manchester United, you know, I'd be driving into training. So I couldn't put on talk sport. I couldn't put on Radio 2. I couldn't put, they were talking. So I thought I'll put on uh, whatever music it was. And they come on the news and they were talking about me on that news as well. I thought, oh my goodness, is this ever going to end? Is there a is there a channel that isn't talking about Manchester United in some way? But that was because it was getting closer to probably when I wasn't doing so well and there was a lot of talk about it. But uh, I think you just have to find a way of shutting yourself off from it the best you can. But the world we're in now for young coaches of social media, if you, if that's what your, your world is or, or how you present yourself, it's much different now. And... Uh, in days gone by, in the early days at Preston, I'd look at the I'd look at the newspaper, and there'd be a letter page, and there'd be four or five supporters saying, "Why is Moyes not playing him? You know, and what's he doing?" And that used to be where the criticism was mainly coming from. As you well know now, now there's a, a world of it outside. I am. Um, I got to play at um, the London Stadium, Soccer Aid. It's called London Stadium, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's called the London Stadium. Awesome chat to Karen Brady once in a while. I'm seeing her soon. Um, And uh, I met someone while I was at the Soccer Aid experience who happens to be a family member of a player, a big Premier League player, Mm -hmm. who has taken more abuse than any other player, Mm -hmm. maybe over the last year. Mm -hmm. And I met a family member and I got a chat to them. And um, they told me about the toll it's taken on the the whole family. Mm -hmm. And you never think about that. But yeah. that was actually one of the most important things I think I experienced was hearing from someone's younger sister mm-hmm. that watching their older brother be abused, mm-hmm. how horrific it is. She was almost in tears mm-hmm. because, yeah. you know, if you were my dad and I watched that happen to you. Yeah. Well, I have to say, you know, and it's look, I don't think it was, a, I'd only a week after I lost the Man United job, my dad had a heart attack. Yeah. And it, it was, a, but it was a triple bypass. So it, it, I'm not saying it was because of when I left Manchester United, but that was that was the case. And it, hey, who knows? Who knows? If it would end, we we don't really think that was the reason behind it. We think it was just coming on. But so there there is tolls we get taken in families. Of course there is. But thankfully, my dad's doing well and is still going well just now. Something we don't think about, you know, and people will say to, to you and people like you and foot players, they'll say, well, you pay loads of money, so behave yourself, yeah, Shit, just deal with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, But that's... But look, then the kids aren't. There is, is part of it, and actually, I, I do think many, many times, I think myself is, you know, do people run, understand that we've got a family? You know, uh, I, I made this 
the other day is I was saying to a friend, I was saying this, as a manager, I think as you get older, you no, in business, you'll you get older, you 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 think you get more experienced and you're you know, doesn't make it any better. When I was a young manager, if I lost the game, I would come home, go straight to my bed, pull the curtains, and not wake up to Sunday morning. No, try and, and and I might not sleep. I just didn't really want any. I didn't have any. I didn't really talk with my wife too much. I didn't really talk with my kids. I wasn't. I wasn't unpleasant. I just wanted to be on my own. Done that. The opposite then was if you won on a Saturday, I'd come home and say, "Come on, let's get ready. Let's let's nip up to the restaurant and we'll get a bit of dinner and a couple of glasses of wine." And I, I used to always call it the, the the Saturday night feeling. I'm desperate to get that Saturday night feeling. I'm desperate to have that feeling when you've won on a Saturday, knowing that mainly on the Sunday you're picking up the newspapers and the newspapers are saying you've won and you're 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 going well. But and I thought maybe by the time I get to the age in over a thousand games now, I'll be saying to myself, this this is going to be much, much feel much easier. Not at all. Just as bad. I'm not saying I'm going home every every night I lose now and pulling the curtains and going straight to bed, but it's to just sort of tell you how how the game is. The game is actually nearly completely how important the winning and going back to, I said, where the upbringing was where find a way of winning, win, means that I have more good Saturday night feelings than I do going home and pulling the curtains and going straight to bed. Yeah, I don't think about that. You know, you know when you, you said something a second ago, which is, you know, you'd, you'd reached what I consider to be the very top of the game, managing Everton, because I think about how many tens of thousands of managers there are, coaches out there that are, you know, on the, sun, the Sunday league, pitches and all around the country that are aspiring to manage in the Premier League. It's insane. It's an insane, insane achievement. Um, you managed to Everton, you went to Manchester United, it didn't go well. In that period after, even though you're at the very top of the game, did you doubt yourself in the post-Manchester United? Uh, by my pause might make you think yes, but I didn't doubt that I was actually, I felt that I could do do the job. I could be good at it. I felt as if I could, uh, I, my work on the grass was was good enough to, for where I had been, I had success the years before. So I was always trying to say, it didn't go quite well this 10 months. Why did it not go well? Was it how I managed? Was it how I coached? Was it maybe I didn't have the right players? I had to try and look to see what there is. But the other part of the 10 or 11 years, I'd seen some great players. I had been in FA Cup finals. I had... I'd got to quarterfinals of a European competition with Everton. We'd, we'd qualify for the Champions League one year. So I was thinking as well, was I going to make, say that was all no good then, the, the years we had done it. So I think once I put it in perspective, then I says, no, I'm not, I'm not doubting it. But what I do think is, I think, I think most days you have to get up and be ready to sort of challenge yourself every day. I don't, I don't think you can get out of bed every morning and think, hey, this is fine. You know, I'm, I'm doing okay here. I think every day you're sort of getting up and saying is, you know, how am I going to try and be better? How can I make people better? What am I, how can I make a difference today with what I've got? Paranoid almost. Yeah, near enough, near enough to an extent where you're saying is, you no, know, I can't, you know, you folk, folks say, do you bring your work home? I, I really think if you're in, if you're in the, the boss, if you're the boss, you're always bringing your work home because it's not, you're not just taking, putting your head off and saying, I'm leaving that in the office and I'll pick it up in the morning. I think very rarely you're doing that. I think that's just life if you're if you're a CEO or a boss. I very much agree. I very much agree with that idea of taking the work home. And also when things don't go wrong, in hindsight, everybody's quick to diagnose why it didn't go wrong. Um, has the 
subsequent 10 years where everyone has failed at Manchester United. (laughs) Felt good. (laughs) Because everyone has failed. Jose's failed. Van Gaal went there. You went there. Um, I'm missing someone. I think I'm missing some. I mean, Carrick well, had a stint. Ollie was in it. Ollie, well, yeah. Ollie know, was in. You know, he failed as yeah. well. So that's, you know, five or six great, yeah. great managers who who couldn't make it work at Manchester United for whatever reason. So I mm. think time has almost been good yeah. to you in terms of your, your yeah. the, the story of your I, time. I, there. Look, I'm, I'm, I, I, I get huge respect for uh, Josie Mourinho, huge respect for Louis van Gaal. You know, Ollie was new and is one of one of Manchester United's own, so was always going to be given every opportunity to try and make it work as well. So, I think that I think there's been some great managers going into Manchester United. I think the biggest problem for Manchester United is Manchester City. How do we? F- I'm a Manchester United fan, season ticket holder. How, from your experience, do we get things back to how they were? I think you'll need to probably get rid of Pep somehow from Man City. <laughs> I think that's my, that's my way. I look at it, I think, I think Pep is, I think there is some managers, I think. But you must have an unbelievable perspective, better than me, at like what, because you knew Fergie, you knew the club, everything, you've been inside it. What, what do we need to do to get back to? I think Manchester United, different principles than, than most of the other clubs. Looked at their youth a lot. Uh, didn't always sign maybe the, as I said before, maybe the the, the top yeah. diamond. They always sort of picked and picked out good players who improved. And now and again went and bought a Cantona every so yeah. often or uh, Van Nistelrooy or, or Van Persie Van at different Persie. times. You know, uh, So at different times they, they bought really good players at good times. This is actually a really good point because we've also bought some world-class players yes. and they've all failed. <laughs> yeah. So there is, a, there is something about Manchester United had their own way, but because of the competition which came in from Manchester City, uh, Chelsea probably more in the, in the earlier years, I think those two clubs. I think I think Liverpool have, have had a, an incredible period and got a really good manager as well and top players. I, I think, think over the year, Man United and Liverpool have always had a, a, a level of competition against each other. People say we've not spent money. In terms of players, we've spent shitloads of money. we spent almost a billion huge, or, or whatever. Huge. And all these players, the, I remember the Falcao's, the Di Maria, because yeah. I get excited every time and I yeah. celebrate and I start you know, yeah. blowing up yeah. my friend's WhatsApp chats yeah. and saying, yeah. you're screwed, yeah. we're going to win the league. Yeah. And then every year the, the player fails and then the yeah. manager's sacked. Yeah. So it feels like a bit of a... Is a, the expectation uh, or the excitement on the new players coming in? I, I get this all the time and I say this quite a lot to people I, I hear in media, you know, they're talking about, oh, you need to buy new players. No, we buy new players. And actually, I, I, I would really like football to be where money was not always going to be the key to it. You know, we think the more players you, or the more money you spend... Uh, means that you win the league or you're successful. And look, I think it probably will prove that it is. But I'd rather see that, you know, sometimes that it's not that way. And I just do think that quite often, you know, not buying all the top players, it doesn't mean that you have to buy the top players. I think it's buying good players and people who've got good characters and people who are going to going to work hard for the team. And then, and then they come into that culture, which yes. makes one... Makes, which makes yeah, which makes the difference. Then one if you plus can one equal that. three, like Leicester that year. Yeah, Leicester and the the year they had was was probably what we're all hoping for. Whether it be us and you know, you're seeing other clubs. I mean, actually, Newcastle United, for example, Newcastle United bought a couple of, uh, with respect, three or four English players last January, British mm-hmm. players, uh, probably not necessarily on the radar of the biggest clubs in the country. 
And it and and they've turned round and they've had a great they've had an incredible momentum from probably January last year, maybe just before January, and are keeping that momentum going. And now they're bringing in they're adding in the odd bigger star or the bigger player as they go along. But I thought their business at the start was very good. If I'm one of your players in your dressing room, to to be a David Moyes player at West Ham, and mm-hmm. what would from a character and a personality standpoint, your expectation be of me? So that I fit into the culture and I'm successful. Uh, I'd I'd want you to be, I'd want you to be hardworking. Mm-hmm. I want you to be honest in your endeavour. Mm-hmm. I no, I'd I'd want you to do your jobs whatever you want. I want you to be a team player. Individuals are are really important and, and no more hugely important. We've just seen in the World Cup individuals, but but I I, I do think that I I, I think. To have a consistency about your team is you need to have a team. I think if you've got individuals, you might get inconsistency, but you might get some really good days and we get clubs who can afford to carry one or two individual players who go along. But I think while you're trying to build, build, I think you have to start with a really solid base, good foundation, and then from that point you try and grow. Pamela, you met her at a disco. Yeah. She was lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I keep telling her, but uh, most people disagree. She's been through it all with you, you know, mm. the everything. She's followed mm. you around for decades and supported you in many, many ways. And um, I've heard about the sort of dynamic in your relationship where she's been really, really supporting. You kind of mm. do a lot of it together. You're mm. there for each other. Tell me in your own words what, like, uh, what she means to you, I guess. Eh, well, it's the sort of thing, you ask that question, you'd probably get emotional if you start saying that. So I'm going to say that before I start. Uh, look, my wife has been unbelievable towards me because I remember when we were young, I had a bit what we said is we didn't earn great money. I wasn't I wasn't a hugely wealthy footballer when I was getting paid, but I wanted to play football and would have taken a wage. So Pamela worked as well. Uh, and we had to work to pay the mortgage when we were, together when we were there so we're it was very much that uh, together at the at the start how we could sort of have a family how we could we could work together and I remember saying to her I said no I, I, I might need to be a football coach and I remember when we were courting I said look I'll need to go to coaching courses I might not be here I'll need to I want to try and go and see how it does and I remember saying no problem you go and do what you have to do and if I wasn't given that freedom in the early years to say I'm going coaching courses I mean I went out to see Ancelotti at AC Milan. I, I went to the World Cup. Uh, and I have to say, you know, I remember I went to the World Cup and I and because I, I didn't have lots of money at the time and, and we, we weren't skint, but we didn't have loads of... And the PFA helped fund me. So I think at the time the PFA helped fund me get to the World Cup to go and watch. And I remember writing to... I wrote to about five or six countries and said, you know, could I come and watch your training? And none of them replied. The only country that replied was Scotland, and Craig Brown was the manager. Now I was a Scottish coach and worked, and, and not, and I was still young at the time. And they invited me to come and watch training in Scotland. None of the other teams did, but my wife let me get away and get on with it, and try and seek and find out what I needed to do. Probably in the hope that in somewhere after my football career was finished, that I might have been able to do something else. But she was. She still has a great inspiration to me. Uh, and so are my kids. My kids are good kids and, you know, good family. And uh, it's really important to me. 
What role has she played, Pamela, in the, in the harder times in your career? <sighs> you know, I think, I think when, you're a, when you're a football manager, you're going to have hard times. So undoubtedly, so hard times being a football manager, hey, hard times sometimes mean you get sacked and you get, you get some money for leaving the job. You can look at that and say, hey, he's okay with that. But it's not, you've got pride, you know. As I said to you, I was probably losing the job. I was more in embarrassment. I felt embarrassed from from my family, really, that, you know, they were getting talked about, they were getting looked at, you know, you know people were shouting, hey, your dad's lost his job or whatever it may be at that time. So my, my wife's just always stood by me and really supported me whenever it comes to the games, uh, probably knows when she should speak and when she shouldn't speak, when it's going well and when it's going badly. And even that's a skill in itself because, you know, when you're in it, when you're the boss, there's quite often would respect your partner quite often could say the wrong thing at any minute and you and you go, no, you might be thinking, why are you not thinking about, no, you're in the wrong case. So I think it's really important that your partner understands exactly how you feel. Where, where do you think you'd be professionally without her? Uh... I couldn't imagine anything. I couldn't imagine my my life really without my wife. And and you know something, I'm I'm not I'm 59 at the moment, so I thought we got a good bit to go. And we've got a good bit to go, and I want to look forward to the to the years, but latter years together, where we can have more time together. Because being a football manager means that you're away just about every weekend. So you're either away staying in a hotel preparing for a game, or you're you know you're with the team and actually the way football's gone, you're in every Sunday now, you could be in all the time. There's very little family time. And it and actually it's one of the things I think what people don't understand. Hey, by the way, it's a great job, really well paid game. Everybody wants to be involved in, as you like to say, but it's incredibly time consuming, you know, and it takes up so much of your time. And if you, if you have a family, probably they're the ones who suffer most because they don't see you as much as what, probably other families might do if you work uh, Monday sort of nine till five you get home at the weekends at least uh, being a football manager the weekends uh, you don't and actually I'm trying to get a membership with a golf club at the moment back in my home I can't get in because and they say well no you've got to play with you've got to play with members and you've got to play with friends to get in I'm saying I've got no friends in the business we're in it's really hard to have lots of friends outside of our industry, the reason why is because our social time when focusing, hey, we're going out Friday night, we're going out Saturday night, you come in with us, no, I'm in the hotel, we've got a game tomorrow, I can't do that. Oh, will you go out Saturday night? Yeah, but I lose. Oh, obviously I'm not going out with them if we're going to lose Saturday night. So lots of reasons why uh, being a football manager is a great job, but it's also got lots of anti-social behaviour things because of how the job works. Earlier you said that you you haven't been historically so good, especially when you were younger at um, giving praise. Mm -hmm. I can relate. Mm -hmm. One of the things that men are particularly bad at is um, letting, and I'm speaking about myself here, is letting their significant other know how much they appreciate them. Mm -hmm. I think women are usually better at kind of that that affection yeah. and saying the yeah. kind words and stuff. Yeah. And as men, I know this for myself, I don't think my partner actually has a clue how much she means to me and how much she's yeah. been there for me in the hardest times. And, just her presence sometimes when she says nothing mm -hmm. in the yeah. hard moments, how that changes my state. Um, if Pamela is watching this, what are the words you wish you could tell her that maybe you haven't told her? 
she would probably know that I love her. Of course she would. I would hope she would. But more importantly, that I miss her because I'm in London a lot of the time. She's she's up north. She's caring for her mum a lot at the moment. I just really over the time she's been she's been great. We've we've had great times together and but I always want to say I think my best times in, in football I hope are still to come, but hopefully our best times a couple are still to come as well. David, thank you. Thank you thank for you. lots of inspiration over the many, many, many years and lots of good memories in football. Um, you've been an incredible manager, all the clubs you've been at, in my view. And I do wish that Manchester United had given you more of a chance because I just generally believe everything you say about the importance of when, when you come into a new system or organisation, needing that time to understand and make it your own. So even as a Manchester United fan, I was always, I'm always really annoyed at how quickly we've um, moved on with our managers before giving them a chance because they're all objectively great managers and you certainly are as well. Um, and it's just an honour to meet you because, you know, I've watched you on the screens for, for decades. So thank, thank you. you. We have a closing tradition on this podcast where the last guest asks a question for the next guest. Um, and the question left for you is, what is the biggest public misconception about something that has happened in your life? Uh, after thinking about it, I think that there was, a f I felt there was a few untruths at the end when I lost my job at Manchester United, actually. And uh, I found it very difficult to correct them. I felt that, you know, they had been written, so it was very difficult to correct them, uh, you know, which they weren't right. And uh, from that point of view, I couldn't do anything about it. And I found that actually probably one of the biggest difficulties because you try, you want to say, well, here, I'll explain why I made this decision. I'll explain why I chose to do that. Uh, but really, once the headline's there, that's the only thing that matters. You've got to give me one. Yeah, I'm trying to think of one. That's what I'm trying to think. Uh, I've got I've got this one, but I don't know if I... I, I don't want to give the player's name. That's fine. The, so, uh, I mean, it was actually... Uh, so somewhat like... Uh, they said that at Manchester United I banned chips on a Friday. Rio had said in his book that mm -hmm. I had banned chips. I read that. Yeah, I did. And uh, it was actually something which probably most sports profession you wouldn't really have chips. But then in part of it, but understood Manchester United, Sir Alex done a lot of, lot of things maybe slightly different and I totally respected that. And what happened is I remember it was one of my first first games we were staying in the hotel and there was one player who was overweight which I won't name and I remember walking in and I was walking into the dining room and he had his dinner and next to me he had a side plate of chips and that was my reason for after that seeing that one player with the with the, the side portion chip that was my reason for saying there should be no chips on a Friday night mm. and it was sort of written about that that was one of the the, the reason, but my reason was actually because one of the players who was actually at the time a bit overweight, I saw him with a with a side plate of chips, and that's when I used it or or banned them, if you want to say that. Interesting. Thank you so much, David, for your time. No problem. Such an honour. Thank you Good. so much. Thank you.
are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.